We've been reviewing Revelation chapter 2 and 3, thus taking advantage of the second of three sections of the book. The book of Revelation has a divinely inspired outline in verse 19 of chapter 1. Jesus tells John to write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be metatauta, hereafter these things. Now, chapter 1, of course, is the vision that John had seen. That verse comes at the end of, virtually at the end of chapter 1. And so that's the first section, is one chapter long. The second section of the book, chapters 2 and 3, are the things which are, namely these seven churches, that Jesus himself laid out seven letters to. And chapters 2 and 3 that we're now just concluding is probably the most relevant portion of this incredible book to you and I. From chapter 4 on, it's going to get very exciting, very interesting, but in many ways is distant from our immediate reality. Chapters 2 and 3 should be reaching us right where we live. Because we discover as we, as we have studied these seven letters that they are very delicately organized. Every detail in each of the letters supports a central theme for each of the seven letters. Even the title that Jesus selects of himself to open the letter. And the letter includes a report card, some good news, some bad news, an exhortation, and then a close. And the close involves a specific promise to the overcomer. So on the one hand, they have a very definitive organization. On the other hand, each letter is very distinctive for a central theme. And the church at Ephesus was very, very committed to avoiding false doctrine, but so much so that they had lost their devotion for the king. The letter to Smyrna is a letter of death, suffering. And the Lord encourages them through that suffering. doesn't give them a promise to escape that suffering, but simply encourages them to see it through the end. The letter to Smyrna is one of two letters that has nothing bad spoken of it. The third letter, the letter to Pergamos, is where the church gets married to the world. And what Satan could not accomplish through persecution... He skillfully accomplished by compromise. And so Pergamos is the worldly church. And that's followed by the letter to Thyatira, which manifests this woman Jezebel, who teaches them to, in effect, engage in a form of idol worship, thus commingling the light of the gospel with the false religion of uh, pagan idolatry. Thyatira is followed by the church of Sardis, which turns out to be a denominational church, but is dead. It has a name that it lives, but has no life. And if Protestant commentators had a field day with Thyatira, that would imply that Sardis is the Reformation, and that Sardis is one of the two letters that has nothing good said about it. Which brings us to an observation of all seven letters are provocative because in all seven churches they had a misconception of their own situation. The churches that thought they were in bad shape were in great shape, the Lord mentions to them. The churches that thought they were in great shape are in terrible shape. What's provocative and should give us great pause is to realize that all seven churches did not see themselves correctly. All seven churches had misconceptions as to where they stood spiritually. And Sardis, of course, being one of the best examples of that. It's followed by a church of Philadelphia, which is one of the two churches that has nothing bad said about it. Both Smyrna and Philadelphia uh, have nothing but good news. Philadelphia is much studied because it clearly has overtones as being... In fact, it carries an explicit promise to be removed from the Great Tribulation before it happens. Removed from the time of the Great Tribulation. And, of course, the last letter is the letter to Laodicea, which is in such bad shape that Christ is outside docking to get in. And it's the rich, worldly church that uh, is spiritually in big, big trouble. Now, as we study these letters, we notice something interesting, that each letter carries a particular catchphrase or closing statement. Each letter has an admonition. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In the first three letters, that closing statement comes prior to the promise to the overcomer. The promise to the overcomer is almost as a postscript. In the last four letters, the promise to the overcomer is in the body of the letter. The he that hath an ear phrase closes the letter at the very end. Now, you can regard that as just accident or coincidence, but 
I'm of the view that there's nothing, no detail in the Bible, let alone in the book of Revelation, that's there by accident. It's all there by design. So for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit somehow singled out the first three and the last four. As we study the last four, they all share some interesting characteristics. The last four letters all carry an explicit promise to the second coming of Christ. So in some sense, at least, the last four are eschatological. That is, they endure up until the end. I do believe, it's a speculative view, but I I think most conservative scholars notice that these seven letters also lay out a history of the church when put in sequence. In fact, if they were in any other order, that wouldn't be true. So that leads to another insight about these seven letters. They have at least four levels of meaning. The first level is pretty obvious, a local, immediate, practical level. Through archaeological research of Sir William Ramsey and others, we know that these seven churches actually existed at the time, had the kinds of problems that the letters deal with. So they had an immediate local application. They were real churches with real problems that Jesus, through John, was dealing with. But again, we notice that the Holy Spirit in each case says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All seven letters are intended for all churches. And indeed, as we understand the letters more thoroughly, as we understand the unique profile of each of those seven churches, we discover that all churches can be mapped against those seven issues. All churches. Every one of our churches. I have very disturbing news for some of you. We're not all in the Church of Philadelphia. We'd like to feel that way. But there's some of each of the seven churches in each of our fellowships. And so we need to be aware of that, be sensitive to it. And so as we study these letters, we want to uh, take that to heart. So I'll call the second level an admonitory kind of application to churches in general. There's a third level. The Holy Spirit says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I didn't have the elders do an inventory as you came in this evening, but I suspect everyone in this room has an earlobe. And if that's true, (laughs) the letter is written to you. Personally, each of us and myself, but to all all of us. He that hath an ear, let him hear. The admonitions, the spiritual insights, the good news, bad news, report cards, apply to each of us individually. Many of us in this room may have been guilty of being so zealous against heresies or false doctrines that we have lost a love affair with Yeshua. Too busy on the service of the king to have time for the king. There are many, maybe not so much in our country yet, but it may be coming, but certainly most of the body of Christ in most of the world for most of the last 1900 years have suffered persecution in many, many countries. To stand up for Jesus Christ puts you under penalty of potential death. And so the letter to Smyrna is one that certainly applies to much of the world. And if the current trends in our own country don't change, may begin to apply in the dark ages that may be coming in front of our horizon. The letter to Pergamos, the marriage to the world, I think all of us run the risk of allowing the world to compromise our commitment to our own monarch, our Lord and Savior. Thyatira is also a risk. There's pagan idolatry in almost every church in some form. In some places, in some forms of worship, it's very conspicuous and a shock as one begins to understand the God of the Bible and what upsets him. In other places, the symptoms, the signs may be much more subtle, but certainly in our society in general, in some of our churches in particular, the Thyatira message is very, very crucial. I think the mainline denominations, all of them, need to study Sardis very carefully. Very, very carefully. The Reformation did a great, great work in returning to the concept of salvation by faith and not works. Marvelous history of heroic deeds by many people bringing the the field of soteriology to, to a biblical basis. But they stopped short. They ignored a number of things, eschatology being one of the main things it took till the 1800s to resurrect the first century eschatology. And that's what Philadelphia is all about. The love of his appearing. The rediscovery of the second coming and what it 
means to the Christian walk day by day. And that was uh, certainly characterized, not uniquely so, but certainly characterized in the early 1800s by the, a number of different groups that rediscovered those truths and have popularized. Theology that we now discover from historical writings was prevalent in the early centuries. But that leads us, of course, to the Church of Laodicea. And we can't read that letter even casually without recognizing today, the church at large today. So we study these things, realizing that these seven letters apply in those three levels, certainly local or historical, admonitory to all churches, personally to all churches. But it's this, it's this last level, the fourth level, the prophetic implications that perhaps comes as the biggest surprise. Because as we study these churches, and as you study church history, it's rather fascinating to see the parallel that uh, in terms of the early apostolic church and how it ultimately became married uh, to the world under the conver so-called conversion of Constantine and the succeeding emperors ultimately uh, becoming the state religion. And uh, uh, Constantine himself getting so fed up with the paganism of Rome that he moved the headquarters of the world to Byzantium. And uh, centuries later, still the struggle continued. And, of course, as the, as the Muslim world conquered the East and as Rome fell to the barbarians, that gave opportunity for the ambitions of the Roman leadership to seek temporal power. And most of our history of the Middle Ages, the medieval period, is a, a time of wars and struggles that have at its roots the uh, gains and losses, if you will, uh, the vicissitudes of the Roman ambitions. And, of course, that leads us to the 15th century and the dramatic Reformation that uh, exemplified by the heroics of, of those many men that were tortured to death to reestablish the true gospel as they understood it, that we're all beneficiaries of. And the history from then gets, uh, uh, I think you all realize, after the 16th, 17th century, we get to the 18th century, we have the rebirth of the eschatological part of the picture, that is so prevalent today. And, and, of course, many of the controversies today still have their roots in some of those ancient struggles. Now, what I thought we'd do tonight is shift gears with all this fresh in our minds. I've taken the trouble to review chapters 2 and 3 just to put us back in that mindset. I'd like to share with you something that I find very, very interesting. It may seem as if we're changing subjects substantially, and indeed we may be. But I thought what we would do as sort of an appendix to our study of the seven churches is to pause tonight to explore a chapter in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 13. In Matthew chapter 13, we have a very familiar chapter in which our Lord Jesus Christ presents publicly seven parables. These are commonly called the kingdom parables. Now, many people mean many different things as they try to get very denotative about the kingdom. And I'm not going to zero in on that tonight. That's a complex subject that goes beyond our scope for the moment. But we do know that at least part of his kingdom is focused on by these seven parables. In fact, the fact that there are seven suggests that in at least some sense it's a complete portion of his total kingdom. Now, the chapter opens up fairly straightforward. The same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the seaside, and great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that he went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. In other words, in order to address a larger audience, he positioned himself in a boat just offshore so he could deal with the crowd that had gathered. Now, what we're going to do, I'll try not to confuse you, but I'm going to take this chapter in a little different order. What you're going to discover is that Jesus presents two parables. Also in the chapter, he's going to interpret two of the parables. He then also will present five additional parables without interpretation. So one of the things we're going to do is we're going to look at all seven parables, but we'll move around a little bit because the thing that makes it a little complicated is that Jesus' interpretation, the two that he does choose to interpret, he interprets privately. Privately. The parables are given in public. The interpretation is done in private. He gives five more that he doesn't interpret. When he's through giving those, he says, hey guys, did you understand these things? They say, we sure did. 
And I'm going to be very anxious to talk to them when I meet them and ask them, why didn't they let them explain the other five too? Were they bluffing or did they really understand? Now something else I'd like to do before we jump into the chapter verse by verse, which is my usual style, within the chapter Jesus makes some broad comments about the content of the chapter. So rather than read that when we get there, I'd like to skip ahead and read those particular verses first to get our mind clear as we, before we go into parables. So let's skip down to verse 10 for the moment. And this section I'm going to label the real purpose of the parables. When you get to verse 10, he will have given them one of the seven parables, a very familiar parable to most of us. But in verse 10, it says, The disciples came and said unto them, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? I want you to get the picture that the interpretation of the parables is private. The parables are public. And you'll follow that as we go through here. Now, by the way, before you read it, what is the purpose of parables? What have you been told is the purpose of parables? I've been told many times in Sunday school classes that parables are there to teach, to make a truth clear. And don't misunderstand me, they certainly do. If you add something to them, and that's the Holy Spirit. If you read a parable and are confused, there's something missing. It can be the light of other scripture, but in any case, it's the, it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Remember what Jesus told them in the upper room, that when the comfort comes, he will teach you most things, right? No, he will teach you all things. So the Holy Spirit is a key part of this. Now what you don't realize until you read this chapter is what is transpiring here. Let's read Jesus' response, verse 11. He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. Well, that's a little confusing. You mean he's speaking in parables? So they won't necessarily understand without the Holy Spirit. That's a very strange idea. Don't accept it because I say so. Consider it as a possibility and let's read on. Verse 12. For whosoever hath, to him it shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. Whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away, even such as he hath. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing, see not. And hearing, they hear not. Neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. He's quoting, incidentally, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. But you can find these same ideas in Ezekiel 12, verse 2, Mark 4, 12, Luke 8, 10, and a lot of other places. Jesus continues, verse 15, For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. Now you can say, gee, that's pretty exciting. They're seeing a lot of things that the prophets desired to see. Well, you can make a long list of those things. The miracles, the healing of the blind, and certainly ultimately the cross. I mean, all those things were clearly mentioned in the Old Testament. There's another surprise coming. Skip over to verse 34. Verse 34 has a very strange statement. Verse 34, All these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spake he not unto them. Well, now, wait a minute. In other words, this says he only speaks in parables, and he doesn't speak them but in parables. Now, that's not true earlier. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, those aren't parables. Those are pretty straightforward remarks, aren't they? If you study the Gospel of Matthew carefully, you'll discover in chapter 12, the chapter just before this one, an event occurs that Jesus calls the unpardonable sin. Much confusion about what the unpardonable sin is. Jesus does a miracle, and they ascribe the miracle to Satan. 
and you can study chapter 12. And if you study the Gospel of Matthew, you'll discover at chapter 12, a switch is thrown. At that point, they're on a path as a nation that, of course, climaxes in the rejection of their Messiah on that triumphal entry day that Gabriel predicted the very day that Yeshua HaMashiach would present himself as the Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the King. And he announces that from that day on, they're blinded, as a nation, that is. All that's in Luke 19, and it's also respond to in Matthew. Now, the point is, something occurred in Matthew 12. That goes beyond our study here. We're not here to get into the whole Gospel of Matthew. The point is, at that point on, Matthew 13 is a milestone upon which Jesus, apparently, according to verse 34, speaks publicly now only in parables. He doesn't teach in direct terms. He teaches in parables. And uh, without a parable, he spake none of them. Now notice what it says in verse 35. That it might be fulfilled which is spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. That's quite a statement. Now, if you're studying your Bible carefully, this says something very interesting. It says that he is going to open his mouth in parables and utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Which means, unlike most of the other things we find in the New Testament, which were anticipated in the Old Testament, this isn't. The things that are contained or implied in these seven parables we're going to study are things you will not find in the Old Testament. That's kind of interesting. That raises a question. What truths in the New Testament are the truths that were not revealed in the Old Testament? And the answer is pretty conspicuous. And that's the mystery of the church. You might want to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. There's many passages we could pick, but I'll pick Ephesians 3 as an exemplar here. Paul is writing to the Ephesians. We'll just start with chapter 3, verse 1. For this cause, I, Paul, prisoner of Jesus Christ for the Jew Gentiles. He's addressing it to the Gentiles. If ye have heard of the dispensation of grace of God which is given me to you, how that by revelation, notice this, by revelation, he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote before in a few words, by which when ye read ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What is it? Verse 6. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, and of the same body, and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. And he goes on. This is one of the many places you'll find in which Paul carries both the privilege and the burden of somehow communicating an incredible mystery that we glibly call the church, the ecclesia. Many of our theological difficulties accrue because you and I fail to fully appreciate the uniqueness of a believer that's a member of the body of Christ. There are privileges available to the church that are not available to the believer in the Old Testament. That's a staggering statement. Take Abraham. Take Moses. Take David. They're all Old Testament saints. There are privileges you and I enjoy spiritually that are unique to us. Many people get confused about the rapture of the church. Strange idea. And the reason it's a, people get confused is they regard it as a topic of eschatology, of end-time prophecy. The reason they're confused is they haven't done their homework in ecclesiology to really understand the mystery of the body of Christ. And that's one of the ways to sort of get at this is to highlight what Jesus said about John the Baptist. Jesus said of John the Baptist, No man born of woman is greater than John. What an incredible accolade that is. In his next breath, he says, but he that's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Oh, wait a minute. What does that mean? Was John not saved? No, of course not. Of course he was saved. 
But our clue begins to illuminate when you look at Luke 16, 16, which says the law and the prophets were until John. When did the Old Testament close? The last book is the book of Malachi. Or Malachi if you're Italian, but it's... Okay. <laughs> but the period of the Old Testament program continued up until John the Baptist. Luke 16, 16 is one of the milestones. Something very dramatically changed after the Old Testament. Something new, mysterious, dramatic was born in Acts chapter 2. Celebrated on the Feast of Moses as the Feast of Shavuot, Feast of Pentecost. And one of the things you need to undertake in your biblical studies is to take a serious, serious look at the mystery of the church. And don't let people confuse you by muddling up Israel and the church. They're distinct, different. Different origins, different missions, different destinies. Very key concept if you're going to take the Bible seriously. But now Jesus tells us something here in that these parables contain truths. Verse 35 said, I'll open my mouth and barrels and I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. So it should not surprise us to discover that these truths that we're going to see are maybe not as universal as some people presume and in fact contain secrets having to do with the church. So with all that preamble, let's go back and take a look at Matthew 13. We got down to about verse 3, didn't we? He goes and he sits in the ship and he starts teaching them. And from from verses 3 to 9, I'm sure they're very familiar to you, but let's just read it through. It's pretty straightforward. He spake many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow, and when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. By the way, I want you to remember those birds. Those birds are going to be important later on. What did the birds do? They picked the seed, didn't they? It's always called the parable of the sower, because that's what the Lord called it. But you might think of it as the four soils. The sower with four soils. At first... He sowed it by the wayside, and these seeds were just eaten by the birds. Soil number one. And you notice it was obviously useless, unfruitful. Down to verse 5. Some fell in stony places, where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up, because they had no deepness of earth. That's soil number two, stony ground. Verse 6. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. That's Okay, we've got soil number three, thorny ground. So we've got the wayside, stony ground, thorny ground. That brings us to verse 8. But other fell on good ground and brought forth fruit. Some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. The subject here, of course, is fruit bearing. There are many other things we could talk about that's not the focus, as you'll see when the Lord himself interprets it. But we have these four soils. Now we have verse 9, which echoes in my ear. Notice what verse 9 says. Who hath ears to hear, let them hear. Does that ring familiar? Does the Holy Spirit sort of say, hey, link that with Revelation 2 and 3? He may or may not. He does to me. He may not to you. But let's just see what goes on here. Now, at this point, we get to verse 10, which we've already reviewed. We went from verse 10 through 17 as a preamble to get your mind on this. We get to verse 18. Jesus interprets the first parable for them. Verse 18 says, Hear therefore the parable of the sower. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom, and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one, and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he that receives seed by the wayside. That's soil number one. It's unfruitful. That soil is vulnerable to the interference of the enemy. Who are the agents of the enemy in parable number one? The birds. What we're going to discover, I'll try to show you, is there's a principle that the theologians call the principle of expositional constancy. Whenever you discover a very simple rule in the scripture, it's very important to give it a highfalutin title to impress your friends, you see. (laughs) And of course, I'm being facetious. But the point is that we discover by just reading that the Holy Spirit tends to use the same idioms throughout the scripture. That's why I love to point out that you have 66 books that were penned by 40 authors over thousands of years, and yet it's a single-message system. The stone, the rock, in the book of Genesis, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, was Jesus Christ. And these idioms, the stone of stumbling, the rock of offense, the headstone of the corner, all these idioms, 
are used consistently throughout the Old Testament, the Psalms, the New Testament. It's interesting how the Holy Spirit does that. And there's a, you can just pick up a concordance and verify that for yourself. But the point is, we're going to discover in these, in these uh, parables that the sower is the Son of Man, the seed is the Word of God, the field is the world. Those things are going to be consistent with these parables. I'm, the suggestion, just a suggestion, are the birds also consistent? Because if so, it has some very bizarre implications. So let's continue here. Uh, we're down to verse 20. But he that received the seed in stony places... The same as he that heareth the word, and anon with joy received it, yet he hath not root in himself, endureth for a while, but when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, he, by and by, is offended. So soil number two, no depth of root, also unfruitful. Verse 22, he that received seed among the thorns, is he that heareth the word, and the care of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. So we have worldly cares. Okay? The one case, the enemy anticipates it. The second case, there's no depth of root. The third one, there's worldly cares. But in the first three soils, for what different reasons, they're unfruitful. And that brings us to verse 23. He that receives seed in good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, and which also beareth fruit, and bringeth forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. So you have this parable of four soils. Now, we've all heard sermons on this parable. And I suspect those sermons probably are likely to have followed the Scripture because the Lord Himself interprets it for us. So we haven't gotten into trouble with parable number one too far because the Lord made it pretty clear. There is one thing that might catch our eye. Do you notice the fruitfulness declines? Hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. Coming from Revelation 2 and 3, that's a little disturbing. You know, in terms of the implied fruitfulness of Laodicea. Just a thought. But that brings us to verse 24, the second parable. Here again, it's familiar to us. Another parable he put forth him saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a man who sowed good seed, good seed, in his field. And while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Notice again, the enemy's involved. See, it is a warfare, isn't it? You are the subject of a warfare. Don't ever forget it. Spiritual warfare. When the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. And the, so the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence hath it these tares? Or like weeds for our purpose. I get into some technicalities, but I'll spare you that now. Basically, view it as weeds and we're close. Verse 28. He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? And he said, Nay, lest while we gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. In the time of the harvest, I will say the reapers, gather ye the first the tares, bind them into bundles and burn them, then gather the wheat into my barn. It's kind of interesting, by the way. Why are we always so anxious to tear up the apparent tares prematurely? Now, in this case, we can pop over to uh, verse 36. I'm doing it this way because this is the portion of the chapter where the Lord interprets this one for us. Starting at verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away. See, in the meantime, he will have given them some other parables. We'll come back to those. But he says, Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, He that soweth the seed, the good seed, is the Son of Man. Isn't that the same thing as in parable 1? Same kind of a model, isn't it? The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, and the tares are the children of the wicked one. Again, you see the field, the seed, so it is all consistent. Verse 31, The enemy that sowed him is the devil, the harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be at the end of the world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity. And shall cast them in the furnace of fire, there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father, who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Ooh, there's that phrase again. That should get our attention. Now here, once again, I think the parable we've just read is pretty obvious. I think we've all heard sermons on it that uh, are very likely to be right on the center line of what the Lord intended, because he's laid out his own interpretation. But let's pick up. Now, we've talked about only two of the seven parables. Let's pick up parable number three, the mustard seed. Verse 31 
Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Period. And you can scan the chapter and discover that's all there is. At the end of the seven, Jesus says, do you understand these things? And they said, yeah. So he didn't bother <laughs> giving us any footnotes. Now, what many people preach on this particular parable is the idea that the mustard seed is planted and it grows to be this wonderful thing that's so wonderful even the birds can come and lodge in the branches. There are two problems with that at least. First of all, and I, I apologize for disillusioning you of your Bible dictionaries and handbooks because so many of them, if you look this up, will say that they will give you some botanical name of this tree that they think is being used here. All you have to have done is visit the nation Israel. And when you're in your buses traveling through Judea or the Galilee, you will see on the sides of the road these beautiful, in the springtime, the February, March time period when we usually go, these yellow bushes, yellow flower bushes. They're beautiful. And they're about three feet high. Four feet sometimes, but it's in that range. And you stop and pick one of those and bring it home for a souvenir. That is the mustard that grows in Judea. Now, the very common sight. It's equivalent to what we would consider a dandelion. I mean, they're, they're everywhere. First problem is they grow to about three feet high. How many of you have seen birds feel secure making a nest in a bush three or four feet high? Not very often. There's a second problem. Jesus has established this apparent principle that these things are consistently used. And these birds are the ministers of Satan in the first parable. Well, we're starting to have a problem here. The picture that you begin to get here, if you're paying attention, and if you have this background... The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed planted, which grows into a tree so that even the birds of the air can lodge in its branches. You say, well, wait a minute. What's going on here? I'll come back to this. Let's find an even more puzzling one. Yeah. Oh, it gets worse. Anyone that comes to a Chuck Mister Bible study that leaves undisturbed wasn't paying attention. We, we try to have something to offend everyone. Verse 33 is even more enigmatic. It's parable number 4, the woman in the leaven. Verse 33. Another parable spake he unto them, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. And many pastors have taken this verse to be interpreted very much like the previous one. That somehow the church is going to be a situation where, like leaven, it's going to eventually... Unify the whole world. The whole world is going to be a better place because everybody is going to eventually, and so forth. That's a concept, especially among the kingdom now, the dominionists, and so forth. But wait a second. Let's back up and look at this more closely. Jesus was Jewish. He was king of the Jews. He is king of the Jews. Jesus is Jewish. Don't ever forget that. He was a rabbi and very, very orthodox in the true sense of that term. He was talking to disciples. All of them were from Galilee. One was from Judea. He happened his name was Judas. The point is, though, they were all Jewish. To a Jew, what is leaven? Leaven is a type of sin. It's always used as a type of sin. Uh, you'll find it all through the Scripture. Exodus 12, 13, 34, Leviticus 2, 6, 10... 23, Amos 4, Matthew 6, and you'll find it in the New Testament. Use some way. Leaven is a type of sin because it corrupts by puffing up. Where did sin have its origin? In the pride of Lucifer, Isaiah 14. So leaven is classically, throughout the Torah, a type of sin. Jesus used the term that way too. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. He mentions it twice. Paul, in his letters... Mentions it twice. 1 Corinthians 5 and Galatians 5. Beware the leaven. The little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. But it's said in a derogatory way, not a positive way. Now the other thing to look here is we've got three measures of meal. 
If you're a Jew, or incidentally, or an Arab, three measures of meal is the classic fellowship offering. It has its origins in Genesis 18. Abraham was by the oaks of Mamre, and he received three visitors that turn out to be the Lord himself and two angels. The two angels have a date the following day in a place called Sodom and Gomorrah. And what he does is he tells Sarah to prepare three measures of meal. And those three measures of meal become then historically commemorated as a fellowship offering. Not just in the Jewish world, but in the Arab world as well. Fellowship offering. It's to be, guess what? Unleavened. So if you're Jewish and you have all this background, and your Rebbe tells you, King of Heaven is like a woman who took leaven and put it in three measures of meal, you would gasp in horror. Because the three measures of meal of the fellowship, you don't put, you don't, I mean, you don't do that. So you say, wait a minute, what's going on here? What's the Lord telling us? He just said it's going to be like a tree when it should be a bush that received the birds. It's also going to have something improper introduced that shouldn't be there. Kind of interesting. Now, we happen to be at the fourth parable. When we were studying the seven letters of seven churches, if you recall, the fourth letter to church spoke of the woman Jezebel who introduced idol worship in the church. And we're struck by the fact that the fourth letter had a woman introducing false doctrine. The fourth parable has a woman introducing leaven. Well, that's kind of interesting. Let's go back and look at the third letter. It was a letter to Pergamus. Pergamus was what? Marriage to the world. And we had this issue of the Nicolaitans. Remember the Nicolaitans? Nikeo, meaning to conquer, the laity of the people. The Nicolaitans was this concept of the clergy over the laity. It was a heresy in the Ephesians church, and he applauded them because they hated it. But by the time you get to Pergamus, it becomes the doctrine. The doctrine. And now we find that Jesus, in his third parable, talks about the church becoming a tree that can even house the birds of the air, when the birds of the air were introduced as an idiom of Satan's emissaries, if you're looking for the instruments of Satan, don't overlook the pulpits. How interesting it is that these parables parallel the seven churches. Well, that's kind of interesting. Well, let's just continue and see what else we find here. Oh, by the way, something else. This idea of leaven, by the way. When you study the seven feasts of Moses... You know, the commemorative, they're also prophetic. The first three feasts in the month of Nisan are prophetic of the first coming. The Passover, Feast of the First Fruits, and all that. The last three feasts of the seven are prophetic of the second coming. Between the two, there's the Feast of Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Pentecost. Prophetic of Acts 2, the church. It uses leavened bread. It's the only feast in the book, in the Torah, that uses leavened bread. It has a Gentile flavor, even in the Torah. But let's us move on. We're going to now talk about the fifth parable. We actually, in effect, are down to verse 44. The other verses we've covered. Jesus continues, says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which when a man found, he hideth it, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. And many people, I believe, have preached from this text, saying that you should sell all that you've got to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, you know, that flavor of, of message. There's some real problems with that. No matter how much wealth you have, there's not enough to buy what he's offering you and offering you for free. So that turns out, while a very, a very appealing idea has got nothing to do with the thought in this passage. What is the field? It's the world. And it's for the treasure in the world that he gave everything he had to buy the field for the sake of the treasure. Who is doing the buying? The Lord Jesus Christ. And he's doing the purchasing of that with his blood. And we're going to see him take possession of that which he purchased by showing up with, in effect, the invoice. In Revelation chapter 5, when we see a book sealed with seven seals, written within on the backside, in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. You understand the person that did it all. The person that says, paid in full, it is finished, to die, as his last comment from the cross. He's the one that did the buying. And the treasure 
just sitting in this room. Just sitting in this room. And by the way, you can let just for fun, you can you all know John three sixteen. For God so loved the field that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You can remember John three sixteen, Malachi three seventeen. Let's pop over there and take a quick peek at the Italian book. Malachi chapter three. And this is just one example I couldn't resist. Oh, as long as we're here, I have to look at verse 60. John 3.16, you know. Malachi 3.16, you won't forget after tonight. Interesting verse. They that feared the Lord spoke often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. A book of remembrance. You realize that, you know, you and I can't do anything about the book of life. Jesus did that all. He paid the price for your name to be written there. But what you can do something about is the book of remembrance. What do you do to be in the book of remembrance? Think about him. Apparently, every time you think of the Lord, it's recorded. Isn't that wild? And I thought Colin and Paul had a data processing problem. Can you imagine what he's got going on up there? And my suggestion for you is to spend your life creating a major data processing problem for them. A book of remembrance is written for them that feared the Lord, for them that thought upon His name. I think that's interesting, but verse 17 is where I was headed. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Jewels. That leads me very skillfully into parable number 6, back in Matthew 13, verse 45. Here's a dandy. You've all heard this one. Verse 45 and 46. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Period. No explanation. That sounds identical to the previous one, doesn't it? A little different thought turns out to be here. It's, the analogy is made to a merchant seeking goodly pearls. And he finds one that's so special that he sold all that he had and bought it. You say, well, that's pretty straightforward. Well, now, wait a minute, gang. Let's back up a bit. Jesus was Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. And if you read Leviticus 11, 9 through 12, or Deuteronomy 14, 9 and 10, you discover that oysters are not kosher. Now, you may laugh at that, but there's something very interesting here. Pearls are a Gentile gem. You may find Jews trading in them as they might trade in typewriters or something, but they don't prize them themselves because they are not kosher. Pearls are a Gentile gem. So why does Jesus pick this bizarre example? Well, for many reasons. Number one, he's making a point. He's talking about Gentiles. Secondly, an interesting example he used. A pearl is the only jewel that is produced by a living organism that is a response to an introduced irritation that grows by accretion and that is removed from its place of growth to become an item of adornment. Ooh, isn't that right? Wild? Isn't that interesting? Now, this is the sixth parable. What is the sixth letter of the letters to seven churches? The letter to Philadelphia. The only one of the seven that's promised to be raptured. The others are promised tough stuff. Interesting. Interesting. You thought Tyre had a specific promise they would be in the tribulation. Interesting. Parable number 7 starts at verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore, sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just. They shall cast them into the 
furnace of fire, and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So the seventh parable would seem to parallel the seventh letter to the seven churches. So if we make a list of the seven churches and a list of the seven kingdom parables, a possibility, I'm not insisting upon it, not talking doctrine here, just exploring the letter to Ephesus, the uh, sower, hmm? apostolic beginnings, Smyrna and the tares, maybe, maybe not, Pergamos, the one that married the world, to the mustard seed that becomes a tree that actually even eventually houses the birds of the air that were the malicious ones in the first parable. Thyatira speaks of the woman Jezebel introducing Inquisition, the gathering of lands by Inquisition, of Naboth's vineyard and all of that, and correlative to the woman with the leaven in the parables. Sardis in the field, Philadelphia in the pearl, Laodicea and the dragnet. Now, if the architecture of the seven parables do indeed, and that's something you have to decide for yourself if you're playing with it a little bit, if the architecture of the seven parables fits the architecture of the seven letters to seven churches, you and I should not be surprised because the seven parables were uttered by the same guy that dictated the seven letters to seven churches. You have the same person, person of Jesus Christ, behind both series of seven. Kind of interesting. By the way, just as an aside, Isaiah chapter 4 verse 1 speaks of seven women pleading with a man to be called by his name. And uh, I'll let you wrestle with that to see if there's any cryptic meaning behind that. But let's just finish the conclusion here of Matthew 13, and then do some, I'll show you something, something else. Verse 51, Jesus said, unto, said to his disciples, Have you understood all these things? They said unto him, Yea, Lord. Oh, come on, guys. Give us a break. See, it leaves us to speculate on these other five. Then he said unto them, Therefore every scribe which is instructed in the kingdom of heaven is likened to a man as a householder that bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. Some people say it's an eighth parable. Others feel it's just a proverb. It's a, it's a form of explanation. Suit yourself. And it came to pass that when Jesus finished these, these parables, he departed thence. Okay, so we've sort of reviewed the seven letters of seven churches. And we've just taken perhaps a rather unorthodox look at the seven kingdom parables. There's something else that I want to leave with you to think about. The New Testament, as you know, consists of 21 epistles. Actually, 28, because everybody forgets to count the seven letters that are in the book of Revelation. But basically, we have 14 letters that are ascribed to Paul, 13 plus the book of Hebrews. And we'll set aside the book of Hebrews for the moment. I think most of you know I believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews because he did write a letter to the Hebrews, Peter makes reference to. But also, if he wrote one to the Hebrews, if you understand the book of Acts, you realize why he wouldn't sign it. He's not writing as a, from an apostolic authority position. But in any case, I believe that Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith, is the background for a trilogy. And Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews are the trilogy. The just shall live by faith. Who are the just? The book of Romans deals with that. The just shall live by faith. How shall they live? Galatians deals with that. The just shall live by faith. And what's faith? The book of Hebrews focuses on that. So you'll discover that Habakkuk 2.4 is quoted in all three, and it, they, the three epistles, Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews, form a trilogy. <laughs> so if Paul didn't write Hebrews, the Holy Spirit's even more creative than I had realized. But in any case, but let's set Hebrews aside, because it's not signed by Paul, and it's perhaps a, a deliberately so. So we have 13 epistles by the Apostle Paul. Now, three of those are doubles, 1 and 2 Corinthians, 1 and 2 Timothy, and 1 and 2 Thessalonians, which means if you take 13 and three are doubles, you've got 10 addressees. But three of those are pastors, which means you've got seven churches. When I realized that, that blew me away. I thought, gee, Paul wrote seven churches. I wonder if those seven churches can be mapped against the seven churches that Jesus wrote to, so to speak. Well, the first one's easy. In the book, Revelation chapter 2, it starts out with a letter to the church of Ephesus. So I'll tentatively label Ephesians of Paul to the book of Ephesus, right? The next letter in Revelation is Smyrna. Smyrna being a word for myrrh, death, suffering. 
Is there one of Paul's letters that specifically is a letter that has to do with suffering or the joy through suffering? Philippians, right on. The third letter is Pergamos, marriage to the world. It's one of the seven churches Paul wrote to the worldly church. Sure, his, sec- his, his epistles to the California or Corinthians. <laughs> Married to the world. Fourth letter was to Thyatira. Is there a letter of Paul that is a call out of religious externalism? Book of Galatians, indeed. I'm going to let Romans be levied against the letter to Sardis. That leaves me Philadelphia, the raptured church, is one of Paul's churches he wrote the principal prophetic development of the rapture in the New Testament, book of Thessalonians, both first and second, right? And that leaves me at the end, Laodicea. And that leads me at the end with the letter to the Colossians. And as I study this carefully, I discover there's a half a dozen unique Greek phrases that occur only twice in the New Testament in the book of Laodicea and the book of Colossians, a linguistic link. One of these examples is the beginning of the creation of God. And how interesting it is, we also discover if you read the letter to Colossians that they were instructed to exchange letters with Laodicea. They were suburbs of one another. How, how interesting it is. Because if that's true, and you have to read these epistles and decide for yourself, but if these seven churches that Paul wrote to correspond in some mystical way with the seven letters that Jesus wrote to, and they also map against the seven kingdom parables of Matthew 13, you can't help but stand back and gasp in awe because the fingerprints of the Holy Spirit are all over these things. You see, you could argue, I suppose, that the gospel writers, you know, Matthew and and maybe John, somehow were mystics. Matthew really wasn't. John was. He certainly was. The book of Revelation is clearly that way. The gospel is just as mystical as the book of Revelation. It's just not as obvious. The gospel of John is built around seven miracles, seven discourses, and seven I am statements. Very skillfully organized. And he takes liberties with the order of events so they chronicle the history of Israel in a mystical way. Very interesting gospel. But Paul wasn't that kind of a guy. Paul was a pragmatic guy trying to pull together the early church. As he traveled between his beatings and his jailings and his other agonies, he wrote practical letters to churches trying to solve practical problems. I would not argue he's a mystic. I would imagine that these observations, if they're valid, would amaze Paul. I don't think they were conscious at all, for lots of reasons. If for no other reason, he wrote these long before the Revelation was penned anyway. Interesting. I think these kinds of things are interesting. How valid they are would make doctrine of them. And yet, as you behold these things, and as you search your Bible from cover to cover, I strongly encourage you to be led by the Spirit, to keep your hearts and minds open for what He might reveal to you. Because we discover indeed that the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. And the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. It's one book. Every number, every place name, every detail is there by design. Now, you say, Chuck, you're, you've gone out on a limb here. This is pretty weird stuff. Well, if you think that's weird, let me leave you with one more insight just to really stir up some trouble. When you talk about the church, of course, sooner or later you have to come head to head with the rapture of the church. You all know that the rapture occurs in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4. And just for fun, let's just refresh our memories of the last few verses of 1 Thessalonians 4. Starting about verse 13, Paul says in Thessalonians, For I would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning those who are asleep, that ye sorrow not as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, them also who sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not precede them who are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And then he continues in chapter 5 to point out that the true believer will not be caught by surprise. He comes as a thief in the night to those who are in darkness, but ye are not in darkness that that day shall overtake you as a thief, and so on. That's, of course, uh, an interesting passage. 
Turn with me, just for mischief, <laughs> to Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 26, verse 19 is where we'll start. Isaiah, of course, has <laughs> some incredible insights in it. But in verse 19, he says, Thy dead men shall live, together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust. For thy dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth cast out the dead. So we have here in verse 19 a statement of the resurrection. Probably analogous in a sense to the one in Job. The oldest book of the Bible, the book of Job, in chapter 19, verse 25. I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at that latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. And mine eye shall behold, and not another. Even though my flesh be consumed within me. Incredible statement of the resurrection. But then we get to verse 20 and 21, and then we get some very interesting uh, insight here. Verse 20 says, Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers, and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment, until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood, and shall no more cover her slain. Interesting. Verse 20. Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers. What chambers could those be? In John 14, Jesus says, In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself. I wonder if this is the same thing. Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers, and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment. For how long? Until... The indignation is past. For behold, the Lord cometh out of, his, out of his place. In order to come out of his place, he must have returned to it. You see, come out of his place uh, to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. Has he done that yet? No, that's yet future. There is a time of indignation coming upon the earth. We're going to study that in great detail in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. Very, very key passage. It's going to elaborate on all the elements that are mentioned in the Old Testament called the day of the Lord. The day of Yahweh. Or Jehovah, if you will. But here it says that these are going to be hiding in, in their own chambers until the indignation is passed. How interesting. How interesting. Is this a passage of the rapture? The purist would say, no, it's the Old Testament, and the church is not in the Old Testament. That's certainly true, and yet it's hints of it. There's interesting hints of it. We'll look at Daniel 70 weeks before we're through many more chapters of the book of Revelation. I think many of these prophecies aren't really predictive. They're to glorify God when they do happen. Look back and say, aha, he said so all along. And since it's time to close, you might turn with me to Habakkuk, Habakkuk 1.5. Habakkuk 1.5. Just go to Nahum, turn right. Mm -hmm. Habakkuk 1.5. Behold among the nations and regard, and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days which ye will not believe, though it be told you. Praise God. How true that is of our day. He will work a work in our days that you will not believe, though it was told you. Wondrous time. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. And let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for your word. What an awesome word it is. And we thank you, Father, for the Holy Spirit. We would just ask you, Father, that he indeed would be our teacher, that he would instruct us in all things. You've promised, Father, that we would ask, we would receive. And, Father, we do indeed, in the name of our Lord and Savior, ask you for the Holy Spirit to guide us in these studies. Help us to be ever sensitive to the message you have here for us. And help us to behold and adore the subtleties that glorify your name. We thank you, Father, for your word. And above all, Father, we thank you that the word became incarnate and dwelt among us. 
when we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we thank you, Father, for the gift of your Son. We thank you, Father, for the ultimate love letter that you've written for us. A letter written in blood on a wooden cross erected in Judea so long ago. And Father, we would indeed ask that you would help each of us to grow in grace the knowledge of you. Increase in each of us an appetite, a hunger, and an appreciation for this treasure that you've given us, the Word. We pray, Father, that through the ministry of your Word and the ministry of your Holy Spirit, that you would help each of us discover, each of us to discover that unique ministry that you have tailored just for each of us these days. Help us, Father, to bear fruit for your kingdom. Not by power nor by might, but by your Spirit. For we ask these things, Father, that we indeed might be your instruments, that we indeed might bear fruit to your glory. For we commit ourselves afresh once again in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.